Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Lead here at 11FS. In today's episode, we are opening up on how not to build a bank. Uh, At 11FS, we have experience building financial services products all over the world with differing budgets, scales, target demographics, uh, and functions. But we often see many of the same challenges popping up again and again. While nothing worth doing ever was easy, today we're opening up to the podcasting version of a rage room to vent on the biggest hurdles to overcome when turning an idea from nothing into something. Uh, This is the first part of a two-episode discussion, with today's show looking solely at the initial stage from idea to spinning up a minimum viable product for market. Uh, We've put together an all-star panel of 11s to discuss what are the biggest challenges making that initial idea a reality, how do you get a whole company on board with your plans, Um, and when do you call the regulator? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show, but first, a few brief messages, so please don't go anywhere. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Nights, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11FS.com or visit 11FS.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, let's get started. So, as mentioned, I am joined by a panel of 11s, uh, 11FS All-Stars, who are here to show off their battle scars. So, first off, we have our group CEO, David Breer. Uh, David, great to have you. Maybe you want to give us, uh, our listeners, a little bit of the elevator pitch on what 11FS is. Yeah, I mean, um, man, we have so many stories that sort of contextualize that. But, I mean, essentially, we help people understand their problems and, and fix them whether it's uh, understanding what the opportunity in a market is or or fundamentally making that thing happen. We are the the challenger consultancy to the existing incumbents. Love that, David. Excellent. All right. Um, we also have our group CTO, uh, Ewan Silver. So Ewan, welcome to the show. Um, maybe you can tell our audience just a little bit about your role here at 11FS. So I run all the engineering teams here. Uh, the startup actually builds the banks. So after Kate and Naz and, and the rest of the team have actually come up with the ideas and worked out what we need to do. It falls to me to actually make it happen. All right. Excellent. Well, looking forward to hearing all of your insights. Um, super relevant to what we're talking about. So thanks for joining us. Um, 
Also joining us, we have um, our customer strategy director, Kate Moody. Hello, Kate. Great to have you as ever. Um, Maybe you can just tell us what is a customer strategy director when it's at home? Well, when I'm at home, I'm normally in my pajamas having a glass of wine. But in terms of like my actual my actual job, yeah, I just get paid to be a, a massive customer nerd, really, is how I describe it. So whenever we're designing and launching new propositions all around the world, we're really trying to ground that in what is the customer problem that that needs to solve? What is the impact that we want to have in a customer's life? Uh, and so I, I help lead all of that work in our, our team at LemonFest. Awesome. Our in-house customer nerd. Um, I love it. And then uh, last but by no means least, uh, our CEO of 11FS Pulse and our 11FS General Counsel, Naz Ahmed. Um, Naz, thank you for joining us. Maybe you can remind our listeners of your your many roles here at 11FS. Uh, yeah, so I'm General Counsel here and I uh, head up our delivery function now, I've handed over Pulse, uh, although it's hard to keep up with my multi-changing guises. Um and then, yes, background in RBS and Tandem, which was one of the Neo challenges. So uh, this is a subject close to my heart. Amazing. I'm really excited to sort of dive in and, and, and lift the hood um, w- with everyone. So uh, thank, thanks to you all for joining. So let's, uh, let's dive in. And I'm going to just uh, open it up to the floor. Let's discuss that sort of initial idea stage. So, David, maybe let's start with you. I mean... Um, You've got your finances, everything's lined up from a budgetary perspective, you've got the green light. Um, how do you get going? And I guess what's the first the first hurdle you're gonna face? Yeah, it's it's always an interesting challenge. And um, you know, we've been pretty lucky to to have been the first few people in many a rooms to do these things. And um, I mean to to I guess to pick that first point up the budget's never really signed off. Like actually, you know, we sort of advocate uh, almost a, a startup investment approach to making these things happen, meaning really what you get is seed funding. You get the ability to go and find a problem and and hopefully find enough of a problem that actually uh, w- the customers will really care about that. And if you get that momentum in really what that is and and what that could be for the customer um then it really becomes a an element of creating and, and maintaining momentum but uh but yeah i mean often we've we found you know excitable groups of people with a you know an opportunity in front of them but but going from you know even from a good idea to how you structure it to deliver it is a, a very different matter yeah and david i guess you know those those small chunks um in terms of like the getting getting budget signed off, you know, the, the the sort of stage gates, I guess, for one of a better term in terms of being able to demonstrate value. I guess that's important, right, in terms of bringing other people outside of the the sort of the core people that you mentioned on the journey, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one because there's very much different agendas, you know, and Ewan and Naz and, and Kate will touch on this as as we sort of go through this as well. But there's almost the the project in the way it's described to everybody in the organization. And then there's the business that you're fundamentally wanting to to create, uh, and the narratives around those things, the the trust that you have to earn, the the momentum that you want to build, the the team that you want to build to to fundamentally make it happen as well. Um, it's all about getting those early wins in and and building that trust. You know, very often, you know, if you're working with a new client, you haven't really been in the trenches with them before, so uh, you only really learn what people are like when you. Uh, uh, you really get them under pressure, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that word about you, you sort of earn it, right? The, the the trust and it's 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 not just given. And like you said, those early wins, being able to demonstrate value early, I think is so important. Um, Kate, I guess David touched on it, but how important is it 
being able to build that internal narrative and I suppose being able to face into the rest of the organization and, and sort of demonstrate that value. Yeah, and no, I think it's absolutely key. I suppose the warning sign that I sometimes see, which is like how not to do it, is when you almost have like an internal narrative that's just internal. You know, the, the thing that you talk about around the table, you know, at your boards, which is basically like the reason we're doing this is you know, for X commercial value or, you know, because we're just a bit useless at serving Y customer. And we have a different, we're going to have, oh, don't worry, we're going to have a different narrative when we actually take this thing to market. The way we're going to explain this to customers or the way we're going to justify this to customers is X. Like, actually, you need to be able to put, in, put yourself in a position where you can come up with a, a narrative that works internally and externally. Obviously, we're you know, probably different layers of detail around it, but the value you should fundamentally be looking to create for your customers should be something that you can talk about internally and externally. Um, and you should probably be able to be open about you know, the the commercial levers that you're you're looking to pull as well because you're talking about creating a a fair value exchange and kind of creating value for your customers that they will be willing to to kind of pay for or to allow you to you know, make money off in in a sort of reasonable way. So yeah, the internal narrative is key, but I think if you kind of find yourself getting into a loop where you're having one conversation around a board table and then thinking, oh, this won't work at all if we start to try and talk about this anywhere else, then I think, you know, that should be setting off some flags that maybe you need to, to have a bit of a pivot and approach things slightly differently. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely echo that. Okay. I, I think it's a, you know, it's a difficult one to, if you have the the reason and the real reason, then it it never really creates the uh the the alignment really you know arguably any startup but particularly a startup within a big organization i mean you're trying to get people to believe in the thing that you're doing and if the purpose of that is not right in its first place it's it's never really going to gain the momentum uh that it could do and you know we've got to kind of look at why our organizations building the things in this way inevitably it's to get away from the inhibitors that they've got within the the mothership um and if it started in the wrong reasons inevitably it'll end in the wrong way um i really do think that narrative point is really important though as well and you know naz you and you know when we were building something like metal it was critical to to make sure that everybody uh, is on the same page because often you sort of see things like strategy documentation that's like 30 pages long and nobody remembers all of that stuff and nobody really remembers the things and you've got non-executive directors throwing you know extra requirements in here there and everywhere but i think the the cleanness of a a vision and a and a mission to be a almost a uh, a theme tune for what it is that you're doing and whether it's everybody in the project team or whether it's the CEO of the bank or the non-executive directors or the sponsor that is never really in the room but but needs to know it everybody has to have that same narrative and why it matters and what it is um not just because then they understand what it is but because then they understand what it's not as well and uh, and often you know code names of projects and all sort of silly things really almost um, create a separation between what you're really doing and, and why you're doing it in the first place. Yeah. No, I, I love that point. I guess um, going, going back to the point, because Kate, you mentioned about the, 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 there's always going to be sort of business levers and I suppose there's always going to be internal stakeholders that are going to have different agendas. So Going back to your point about creating that single narrative, right? So that's external and internal. I guess what what's your thinking around how you do that? And I suppose is it is it fundamentally about just grounding 
David's point about the mission, what it is that you're trying to achieve, like starting with customers rather than than some of those other those other things, right? The business, the business drivers, the internal, the internal levers. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm obviously biased, right? Like, I I believe <laughs> that you should start with customers. You should start with customer problems. You should start by looking at kind of where those underserved, overcharged, overwhelmed areas of the market, um, and then kind of working back. You know, start with that desirability, kind of work back into the feasibility and the viability. But again, to you know, flip things, obviously, the, the issue that I have seen is when you spend too long creating this quite isolated, almost just solely customer orientated view of like, you know, we're going to do tons of research and spend months thinking about this and months kind of doing focus groups and sort of really just immersing ourselves in this very engaging and, and very interesting kind of customer research, but like taking too long to get to that view of what your purpose is and then only then starting to think about some of these other elements as well. Like really the, I think you should do the customer stuff first and you should ground yourself in those customer problems by speaking to your customers. But if you wait for months and months to execute like this perfect academic research study and you're not having any of these conversations about like how this thing actually gets is likely to be built or how this thing is likely to make money, then you know, you've you've wasted time and effort. I, I mean I, I totally agree with what Kate was saying there. Um, you know, I think the idea that you need to be able to get stuff, work out sort of the minimum viable capability of what is that minimum why, and then you need to start building something to actually start testing it. And I think actually it's that ability to test and iterate at the same time. That's what startups do. And as Kate, Kate sort of observed, you know, we've seen a lot of banks who they try and get Nirvana. It's never going to happen. And actually, even if it was good at the time, you've lost it. And you know, I think the, the important thing is speed, speed of learning and how do you how do you actually get that learning and then feed that back in. And it's that iterative loop. You know, David talked about the, you know, sort of the uh, the stage funding and the stage gates and so on and so forth. That's actually really, really important. That lack of money is a thing that actually enables success. Yeah. And so like you and I guess, look, the, I guess the biggest the biggest risk of, of doing this, right, of starting with a blank sheet of paper, of sort of building something and trying to get it to market is that ultimately you build something that the customer doesn't want, right? So as soon as you can quickly get something that sort of represents what it is that you're trying to achieve, get that into customers' hands, get them using it, whatever way you need to stand it up, right? I mean, we're not talking about something that's like full service. We're talking about something pretty basic that articulates the experience that customers can critique, and then we can take that feedback and use it to refine the product from there, right? Yeah, definitely. It's it's you, you want to get sort of that minimum set of 25, 30, maybe 40 people, actually people who use it, people who are not necessarily your standard customers, but you want your vocal customers. And I, I guess that's where Kate and the research guys and the product guys can help pull that in. But you, you don't want this thing to look perfection. You actually want it to hit those hit those hypotheses that you're trying to work out what they are, thing that makes your bank different to someone else's bank. And then actually, once you see that they your ideas may or may not work, the ones that are working, you want to double down on. The ones that aren't, you sort of want to drop. And then once you've got that, you can then start to work out what your proper long-term architecture is, because your short-term viability architecture, your short, short-term technology choices are going to be different to your long-term technology choices. And those things will change over time. Yeah. And and you and I guess you've seen plenty of examples where people have tried to tried to run before they could walk, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's smiles all around the room, right? I mean, to David's point, we've we've seen people who, you know, actually they they've they ask for very large sums of money and they'll they'll spend it all on a, on a Nirvana architecture. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, you need to. I think I think one of the problems that banks have is that they think that 
The money is the important part. The banking is the important part. It is critical, but it's also weirdly irrelevant. The thing that actually differentiates one bank from another is not actually your ability to store and move money, the core banking system that everyone talks about. It's the stuff that Kate focuses on. It's the jobs to be done. It's the, it's the customer experience. That's really what differentiates the bank. And so your technology choices really should enable you to be focusing on that top end, that ability to change that higher level product capability. You know, your bottom end, you know, too many banks, I think, come from the historic view of our core systems are things that really matter, and therefore they've got to be ultra stable and ultra secure. They do once you once you at, uh, at scale, but in the short term, that's not where your opportunity for learning sits. So actually building that opportunity in that architecture to allow you to change the higher level capabilities, your product features, your product set, your jobs to be done, is where real value hits. And very few people do that. It, it's interesting that point, Ewan, and actually, you know, no product, you know, 20 years into success looks like it did at the beginning. Similarly, no technology estate does either, right? You, I know you've uh, you've sort of made the point, you sort of grow these things rather than deliver them. And I mean, I, I think all of this kind of comes back to, I mean, we, we've been really lucky enough to do this, you know, what, 12 times now over the last seven years or something crazy, which is terrifying. You know, we've all aged awfully in that period of time because of it, you know, but, but actually each one of them is unique. You know, each one of them is really different because you're actually overcoming different biases, you know, and very often, I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to do. Like imagine if uh, you're a startup, but your VC had a product like yours that was probably more wildly successful like that's usually the instance that we're in. You know, if you think about NatWest with Metal, they were like the biggest SME bank in the UK. Like it was crazy. But so you're you're trying to overcome a PNL owner's dominance over you to start with. Similarly with Mox, I mean Standard Chartered is a very big bank in in Hong Kong, right? So so being able to overcome those things as well as doing all of the things that you're doing as well as managing all of those stakeholders as well as overcoming those those biases to the way things have always been done from a technology perspective or an investment perspective or you know from a governance and control framework perspective i mean it's difficult it's it's the equivalent of like um you know rubbing your belly and and patting your head and you know singing a song and crossing your eyes at the same time you know i mean it there's just layers of difficulty so it's um, but it's bloody good fun it's what we get out of bed for yeah and it's hard right like it's objectively hard but i mean i can see david exactly in the way that you've just set that out why the approach that we've just talked about makes sense right in terms of like those stage gates from a budgeting perspective the the sort of that um that growth approach from the the stack perspective, because exactly to your point, if we try and build something full service that's ready to go and go toe to toe with, you know, metal going toe to toe with um, NatWest SME Bank, well, that's just not going to work, is it? Right. So you've got to take that fundamentally different approach. You've got to design something that's different, that's designed in a different way, and that you can start to demonstrate value in a new way, right? I guess. But if I if I may, what is hard is not. Uh is not building the MVP or servicing it. It's, it's having the courage uh, to accept that it's an MVP and that what the second, third, fourth stages look like is to some extent unknown. That is a very uncomfortable place, particularly for di- traditional players to be in. Um, and the temptation is always to try and build the thing that's actually four iterations away or five iterations away or the final iteration away, which is how you 
burn through giant amounts of cash. And and I would suggest how you are never actually ready to go because, you know, you can never actually reach Nirvana because it can always be better or more perfect or whatever. I suppose, Naz, I'd love to get your take on, like, how much do you think regulators play a part in that? Like, I think, you know, for example, like, you know, I've chatted to one client recently who's trying to set up a new branch of their business and they're having to create, like, almost like a full, they're writing an application, they're having to commit this big plan, you know, working out what this organisation is going to be you know, so they can get the re- relevant licensing. Like, Do you think regulators support that iterative approach or what do you think kind of the regulatory system needs to do to, to support that better? I think it depends on jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in, in my experience, I think they're, they're often a lot more supporting than people assume they will be. Um, and I think, you know, what I think particularly in the early days with the regulator, it's about setting expectation. And in some ways, I know it sounds silly, but having a plan for a plan is often fine, provided that they're assured you won't go beyond a certain stage until you are ready. And and often what I find is actually the biggest problems are two things. So one, an assumption that the regulator will want every I dotted and every T crossed the first time you meet them or within a month of you meeting them, which is simply not true. Uh, But then the other extreme, perversely, is people being really, like, very commendable, being really keen to engage with the regulator early. And it's like, well, hold on. We don't even know if anyone likes the product yet or who've got funding or, you know, how we're going to service customers. And then you just sound slightly half-assed, frankly. So, you know, it's finding it's finding that sweet spot where you have a, a credible plan for a plan, uh, but it's not too early. And then obviously, you know, you don't want to go to them three months before launch. That would be problematic. I mean, it seems to me that actually, you know, understanding what the regulator really wants, and to your point there, Naz, about sort of the regulator and what they want is actually one of the most fundamental things, because it's almost like organisational jujitsu. You know, people think that you need to get that end regulator endpoint in, 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 in place. That's not actually the case. If you can use it, if you get people to understand that, you know, actually the regulator just wants you to have this plan for the plan in the start, and then actually the next stage, it means that your technology you build and your operational structure and everything else that gets in place is fit for that particular stage, and then you can move on to the next stage and then the next stage and you you know as david sort of mentioned you know i i I genuinely believe you grow these systems out you don't try and build it and actually having that having the regulator so they enable you to grow the system out so it's actually a proper viable holistically safe system i think is, is the best way to do this so i guess on that then if we were to bust maybe uh maybe maybe one myth um I think a lot of people would think about building a bank and I think that sort of regulator interaction would probably be one of the things that would send those cold shivers down their spines. But Naz, I think what we're kind of saying is that actually the expectation isn't that they're going to get that fully complete 900-page business requirement document. They will actually sort of work with you in an iterative way and actually sort of help you get to market in a safe way. Yeah, you don't need to, you don't need to be Barclays when you've got... 400 customers would be my yeah. my pithy catchphrase. That's terrific. Other banks like are available. That. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it, though? I mean, obviously, look, we've been lucky enough to do this in a lot of different geos. A lot of regulators work in a very different way, don't they? You know, and actually, you know, HKMA, MAS, the FCA, you know, we've we've come across some really progressive regulators. But, but the sort of ripple of these things going out there, I mean, Kate, you've done work in 
sub-Saharan Africa and we've done it in, you know, Saudi and various different places, there's a different level of of requirement from the regulator. There's a different level of uh, technological understanding or, or comfort with, you know, even like cloud services or, you know, data residency and different things that are going on. So, so I, I think the approach has to be very different depending on really what we're facing into and and how warm the regulator really is to to change. Uh, you know, obviously the UK regulator we've we've done a lot of work in that sense with because of their openness to change and their fostering of competition. But but that isn't the way everywhere. No, no, I definitely agree. It varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think most regulators like to think they're open to change. Like when you deal with them in practice, it's slightly different. I w- I would say though, you know, whatever the whatever the jurisdiction you're looking at, I think, uh, I think some of the fundamentals of approach that Ewan describes, uh, and Kate described would still apply. So you know, e- even if they have more onerous requirements, if you're doing an MVP in a pilot phase you know, you can still be proportionate when it comes to operational risk, how you service the customers, how you onboard them, that sort of thing, just because the volumes allow you to uh, get away with that, so to speak. Um, so I, I, I think even in some of the more onerous jurisdictions, um, in terms of how you organise yourself, you can still be clever, even if the external regulations are kind of more onerous. Yeah, I think... Um... I think that's a really good probably jumping off point into our next section. So I'm just going to take us to a short break and then we'll start discussing putting some of those approaches um, into practice right after this. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Let's let's pick up the conversation um, and look at building something. So um, I guess, David, I'm going to come to you uh, on this one first as well, because I know this is a sort of something you're particularly passionate about. But um, and we've touched on, I guess, some of these in the previous section, but what challenges are there over sort of like working cultures and practices when you try and do something like this? Uh, personally, I, I think it's the biggest thing that you're trying to overcome. Um, and actually, I mean, often there is a, a kind of an exception of that. You know, if you've, uh, you know, day one of doing a thing isn't really day one of doing a thing, there would have been you know, 30, 60, 90 days potentially of of sort of winning the right to be able to do a thing differently. So there's almost an exception at the very early stage that actually, well, if we just do the same things in the same way, we're going to get the same outcome, which isn't obviously the desirable outcome with this type of thing. So, so I, I think while everybody's always very excited about, you know, change and, you know, they're excited about, you know, startup idea and things that go with it. Um, you know, the brutal reality is 
these things are just bloody hard work, you know. And actually, one of the things that we really push people to do is the work. You know, we are we're definitely not there to do the press ups and the sit ups for people. We're there to explain to people why those things really matter. And those things, you know, particularly are about well, how do you structure teams? You know, how do you give people? Even, you know, if you think about the concepts of, you know, product, good product management is about disseminating decision making to people to to really be able to make things happen. And those multidisciplinary teams that you spawn around those things, whether it's, you know, design or product or, or technology w- with that, you know, really empowering them to make things happen. You know, nobody builds a great startup through a series of wonderful committees. It is about giving people the remit to go and make things happen. Um, albeit making the organization feel comfortable to do that in the same way as well. And I think maybe the other thing to kind of point to from a challenge perspective is really back to what I was saying in part one, which is, you know, you've got a big organization who has a, a set of preconceptions. You know, we know the customer, we know the problems, we know the setup, we know, you know, and often, you know, Kate, I'll defer to you on this, but often that isn't the the truth, really, and getting to grips with things like jobs to be done and and explaining why that matters. I mean, this stuff is quite difficult when you're dealing with 30 years of the way in which it's done before. Yeah, I think it's that fundamental shift from trying to think about how do I have financial products that I need to kind of tweak and improve to thinking about going back to thinking about true like financial services and you know what is it? What are those experiences that you want to create that enable outcomes? Are your jobs to be done? For your customers, which probably involves stitching together multiple different financial products, you know, in that kind of flexible architecture that that you and talked about. So, um, yeah, I think you know we talk a lot about jobs to be done. It's not rocket science, but actually, kind of taking the time to try and think about ultimately, like what are, what are the outcomes or the impacts that you want to have on your customers' lives, and kind of holding a same, I don't know. Sometimes when we, we work with clients, we almost have like a like a naughty corner, like anyone who sort of talks in financial product language, like we say like, no, like park that for now. Like we're gonna, gonna come back and think about what this means in terms of the underlying products. But fundamentally, like what is the impact that you want to have? What are the what are the outcomes you want to drive? So it's a difficult habit to get out of if that's the environment that you've been in for for multiple years. But it's fundamental to allowing you to, as we talked about earlier, like having that clarity of purpose, but also in starting to think about you know, how you can uniquely configure you know, either existing products or products that you're going to bring to market in the future or partner with others to, to to connect into, you know, how are you going to connect those in a unique way to create an experience which has a has an impact for your customers and, and is differentiated in the market. Um, and that's kind of where jobs to be done is is really important and, and helps to drive that. I think one of the things I think is uh, I've learned from building these banks in the large, you know, sort of building challenger propositions in larger banks is actually people, they they kind of know what they sort of want to do. But to to David and and Kate's point, they don't actually know really how to put it together. So one of the one of the real benefits I think we bring to to working is that people can actually see what we're doing, you know, to see actually it is holistic. So, you know, the developers are working closely with Kate and the product team and Naz and his compliance and his regulatory team. Actually, they are one one unit working together on a particular product. So it gives you that holistic jobs to be done view, as opposed to here is my team building this product, and here's my team building this product, and here's a team building the UX and and whatever. Actually, the whole thing is symbiotic in that sense. You know, and you, you focus on like what is the service, what's the job that needs to be done here, and everyone understands that, which comes back to the why we talked about to start off with. Why are we here, and why are we trying to solve it? And actually, that 
I think has been useful for a lot of larger banks to actually help start to change that culture. It's not just about doing stand-ups and, and all that sort of stuff. That you know, you can anyone can do those and really bastardize it. Actually understanding the team together understands what's going on, that's the real superpower. I completely agree. And I think that's a real um a really important point. And I've got a follow-up question, Ewan, and it, it kind of comes in two parts. The first part is how do you get people used to that approach and comfortable with that approach when they've never done it before? And then my second question is almost slightly more nuanced, which is how do you get them actually working effectively in that approach when they feel like they've already done it, right? So I think a lot of big corporates have sort of reorged around like agile and they think they're agile and all of that sort of stuff. Fundamentally, what we're talking about though is building a startup business and that's going to be different to what agile at scale looks like in, in a big organization. Yeah, I, I think you just have to start small and you have to live it. Right? You have to actually show people what you're doing. It's, you know, culture is what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not what's written in some policy document. I appreciate Nazel sort of raises his eyes at that. No, you won't raise his eyes at that. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's actually what you do on a daily basis. So people can see that actually, you know, this is what we value. These are the questions we ask. This is where we push back. This is where we accept. Actually, that, that's what starts to jar, you know, sort of jar people. And they're like, oh, well, actually, we're doing something different here. You know, the way that the teams are organized, the way that the, the questions that we talk about, you know, those are different questions focusing on different problems. Actually, everything, you know, the fact that you've got compliance people in that, in that team and you've got the product people and you've got the developers and you've got whoever else it might, the operations team, because these are the teams that need to actually build it and run it. You know, that, I think once you start doing that, you need to do it small, but then you can start to grow it out, which just sort of replicates the earlier comments about staging, finance, and so on and so forth. Actually, if you start small and then grow it, everything works a lot better. But I mean, but also just to say from a risk point of view, culture is everything as well. Because trust me, no one's going to read the policy, including the person who wrote it. And even if they do, there's probably like another 56. It's going to be what they remember or their instincts or just the pausing for thought and being, hold on, should I ask someone about this? So, uh, you know, I think, I think I would say culture across the piece from like a product operational engineering overall strategy and approach, it really is the most important thing. It's amazing how a lot of, you know, what we're talking about, no matter the sort of starting point, always comes back to, to culture. And, and I guess, Kate, look, there's the sort of culture in the way that we've just described it, right? That everything that you do every day and all of that sort of stuff. And then I suppose there's the culture piece, which is a little bit softer, which is like team morale and all of that sort of stuff, right? We've said that this is like objectively hard. You're going to come unstuck at some point or there's going to be sort of like dips in enthusiasm. How do you, how do you sort of deal with those from like a, I suppose, a, a project management perspective and keep people's morale up in the face of that? Um, I'm sure we've probably all got different things that we've seen work in different teams, right? I have seen you know, having that kind of constant check-in loop with your your customers, I think can really, really help with that. Like sometimes you can get bogged down in you know, all of these complexities, all these complex things that you do have to do in the right order at the right level, you know, to, to make these things real. But you know, actually when you can put a, an early prototype or early designs directly in front of the types of people that you want to have an impact for and hear directly, you know, in a open, unsolicited way that they think this thing could be really awesome or could really help them to save time, save money, save stress. Like that is hugely motivating and, and really kind of trying to build that customer connection into the 
the cadence and the rhythm of your team rather than having it as some sort of like outsourced insights function that someone like pops up in a team meeting and goes like oh like Gary and Sheffield loved it like you know, make it more tangible than that I think can really help to keep everyone engaged and and kind of orientated around that that kind of core purpose and that poor, core impact that you're going to be wanted to have and, and things will change right you'll have your vision at the beginning this is what we see all the time is you know you you have that initial discovery phase where you find those customer jobs to be done those problems that you want to solve and you come up with a whole list of things that you'd love to be able to do like to drive that forwards and to change the needle and inevitably as you kind of go through this process of, of starting to build your prototypes starting to think about what you'd launch and what order like your 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 focus shifts and changes so things will change but if you can kind of keep coming back to that core customer and having someone just saying to you genuinely like keep going like I really I really want this like when is it going to be ready when's it going to be out like I want to use it that for me is 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 still after all these years like still just crazy awesome I really love how you answered that question right because you're right it's easy to focus on the fact that it's hard and it's challenging but David I mean the reality is that this is incredibly worthwhile right yeah I mean just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not uh, beneficial to you in in, in fact you know, very much the op- opposite, right? You know, most things that are worth doing are, are, are difficult in that way as well. I mean, I think when it comes to the enthusiasm side of things, I completely agree with what Kate said. There's there's nothing that keeps people connected than than success and and hearing that you're succeeding. You know, further builds that momentum to 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 sort of keep going. You know, this is by uh, by the nature of these types of things, um, they're not they're not sabbaticals, you know, they're not kind of places you go to have like fun for six months and, you know, you go back and return and tell all your friends what you did. This is hard work. So, you know, figuring out the the points of success that you can kind of celebrate along the lines to, you know, further build that trust, further build that momentum, get stakeholders on board, get customers on board. I mean, it all leads to uh, really, you getting you know the next wave of funding, getting the the next wave of opportunity. So, uh, so yeah, as always, I think um, you know it's not a uh, sprint; it's a marathon. But really, the the truth on this one is, it's probably just a series of sprints, <laughs> which is uh, probably pointing to why it's uh, why it is so tiring. Yeah, and I mean, you and keen keen to get your thoughts. One of the things I think that Kate mentioned was this idea about like you know, as you go on the journey, you are going to have to swivel, you're going to have to pivot. I mean, A, I suppose in your experience, how much have you seen that? And B, how important is it to be able to sort of do that in the right way? It happens all the time and it's fundamental. Um, I think that comes back to the earlier points about, you know, people who try and totally define their architecture and their engineering capabilities and their operational models up front, particularly in the early days, that, that, that isn't the way the world works. You know, the whole point of MVPs and customer hypotheses, etc., is that you will discover stuff you don't know, and so you have to pivot this. You know, I, I, I think we can all point to multiple times where someone said, "Right, this is the plan; it's clearly going to work," and it just doesn't resonate in the market. But some minor feature is a thing that takes off. So I think that's why I think the most important thing you can have in your capability is that ability to be able to define products in your higher-level, you know, customer-facing propositions you know, in a rapid way. People spend too much time focusing on the low-level core banking capability, which, as I said before, is both fundamental but also weirdly irrelevant. It's not where the battle's won. And, you know, um, you are going to change your proposition. It is going to happen. That's the whole point of it, of, of this process. So having that ability to, 
change your teams, change your, your, your engineering desire, change your product focus and your features is probably the most important thing you can do. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you need to go out and buy some high scale system that has all this flexibility. Actually, it's about building that, building the system just right for where you want to go to. And I think it's one of those key things to have that, it's almost that, that engineering smell or that architectural smell to say, right, this is where we need to put the pivot points because this is probably where there's uncertainty. So things will change here. Uh, and so some of the times you need to make it, you know, sort of, uh, you, you can bet, you can put your bet on down and other times you have to, you have to be willing to pivot. I think uh, just, you know, I think one small piece of context, because if you listen to this, it, you know, it sounds very, very short term focused which is deliberately so. But I mean, I think it's important for people to remember that all this short-term flexibility is within the context of your longer-term framework and kind of North Star. I suppose what we're really trying to emphasise is flexibility around how you get there and accepting that you can't map out your path to that North Star in advance. But, you know, it's important to keep that aside so that the short-term steps you take uh, I'll continually check to be aligned to it. So I think to you, you know, if I take an example close to my rather boring heart, you know, operate customer support from an operational point of view, you absolutely don't want to have an all singing, all dancing, 24-7 call centre and web chats and blah, 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 when you've got 40 customers. It's going to cost you a lot. But you should have an idea in your mind roughly at what sort of volumes do I think I'll need all those channels and when roughly do I want to get there from like a strategy and kind of business case point of view um but how you do that precisely and which channels are primary or use for what sure that's what you figure out as you go based on like customer reaction and feedback anyway before everyone thought that we were completely short-term focused no it's 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 a really important point and I suppose in many ways now as it brings me back to your point about the plan for the plan, right? You're still being guided by that North Star, but you effectively, you're kind of laying the track as you go, right? And that's that's where the, the, the point around pivots potentially comes in. It's the, the track, it's not a yellow brick road. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, once you're up and running, it does it does become harder because you're, you're basically running your MVP and constantly planning for the next phase and building it and then getting ready to do that and then doing that and then building the next one. But I suppose it's it's kind of, again, from a cultural point of view, acceptance that that is the model you're going down uh, and kind of embracing the fact that you're going to build it just in time, so to speak. Uh, but also the advantages that brings, as in it's based on customer feedback um, in as real time as possible. And I would suggest it's also probably significantly cheaper. I think that's that cheaper thing is, is is one of the key things, right? I mean, now as you and I have you, we've worked on two or three banks where people have spent a lot of time trying to procure all this stuff up front, um, and actually it, it, it's too much, you know, in, in in the early stages. It's definitely what you want for the future, but you know that that early stage of trying to trying to get that learning is in in, in place is is important, and you know you don't want to spend too much because that's where you you will be investing in the wrong system. You'll think I want X, Y, and Z system, but actually the learning is something else. It's actually A, B, C system, and then once you know that, you can actually put the proper system in place and then get the proper procurement and the scale and so on and so forth. But that's that's for a later conversation. It is an interesting point, isn't it? And, and actually, I mean, it's sort of a default of banks to, you know, the term bank grade 
is for a reason, right? And it and it used to be a super positive thing in that sense. But you know, we've I mean, we won't I won't name names here, but we have experienced this. You know, uh, a CRM system we wanted to use for twenty dollars a month, and you know, a big bank wanted us to use one for seven hundred thousand pounds, and it was like you're fundamentally trying to solve a different problem. Um, and actually, to to Naz's point. Um, you know, really what you're trying to do is is mitigate the risk, you know, not mitigate every risk on the planet, because by the nature of being in business, you have to take some risk in in that sense, but containing it to the controllable elements. And in order to do that, you can have a, you know, a quite broader uh, level of, uh, of latitude. I, I would add as well, I mean, we've done this in a, a lot of different ways for different organizations. You know, we've, we've started projects where we've had to write the 400 ways we deviate from internal policy. Um, but we've also started projects where we've, we've basically just gone through the exact same process that everybody else has done. We've just refused to take no for an answer. Uh, and a lot of the time going into those processes, your expectation of what the art of the possible is, whether it's, you know, the regulatory side of things or whether it's the, the modern approaches from a technological approach perspective then you find if you go into it with a different attitude you you come out of it with a, a very different result as well so uh, you know I, I often sort of the the f- early parts of these projects for me is uh, I often describe it as it's like golf you know like you can turn up to the same course 20 times and it be raining or windy or lovely and sunny and you've still got to find a way of getting the the ball from the tee to the hole right uh, and actually you know, dealing with all of those things means you've got to kind of deal with all of those different situations, whether it's people's predispositions or, you know, the CEO's having a bad day or all of these things you've got to deal with, right? Um, but very often, I, I think it is actually, you know, look, you and you've built Nutmeg and now as you've built Tandem, you know, would you say it's harder to build a startup inside a big incumbent organization versus building a startup as a startup, because, you know, actually you've got all of this extra layer of, of, of stakeholders and capabilities and everything to deal with. Um, which would you say would, was more difficult? Uh, building inside a bank every time. Yeah, definitely. If I ignore the tricking issue of funding, uh, which is, I know, a bit facetious, but culturally, I mean, definitely outside, no doubt. I love the, um, I, I actually, I haven't heard that from you before, David, the golf, the golf metaphor, but actually it's kind of perfect, right? Because approach is important, process is important. You want everything to be proportional, but ultimately like context is going to be the major driver, right? And you, you know, you have to manage that effectively. Also, I was going to sort of sum us up a little bit because we've reached the end, but I think you've kind of done my job for me. That was um, a really good, I think, summation of where we've got to. I appreciate we've covered a lot and in quite a lot of detail. Um, but I'm going to leave it there for now. So that does wrap up today's discussion. Thanks to all of you so much for for joining me. Let's go around the sort of virtual room. Where can people find out more about you guys besides, I guess, visiting 11fs.com? David, let's start with you. Always find me lurking on LinkedIn these days. So we're happy to connect and happy to chat there. Awesome. Ewan, how about you? Uh, I'm a LinkedIn person as well. So uh, as David says, happy to chat. Excellent. Kate? Yeah, I was going to say LinkedIn as well, but it's getting a bit dull, isn't it? Um, you can eat. I'm on LinkedIn, but um, you can email me as well, kate at 11 fscom uh, Naz, how about you? I think if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, you'd be very disappointed. So I would say email me at uh, naz at 11fs.com. All right. I'm going to go check out your LinkedIn. 
to discover why I'm going to be disappointed. Um, and as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. Now, please do remember this is part one of two. Uh, so do listen to the second in this series when it drops next Friday. Um, thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.